I miss the happy trees. Just just think of the happy trees when you need to be in your happy place. Remember, there are no accidents, just happy little mistakes. I think that that's why my sister was conceived. I'm reasonably a thousand percent certain that's how I was conceived. What's and fun- alcohol. That's really funny. You're both named Katie. Accidents with alcohol. Yeah, pretty much. That's how we're born, people. That are you not quite awake and don't realize what you're agreeing to? Oh wait, that's that's my first marriage. No, I'm kidding. No, that's that's I'm helping somebody move today into a three four floor walk up from an unknown location because it was seven o'clock in the morning and I wasn't aware what I was agreeing to. It's like love you, Lindsay and Lindsay and Brian who don't listen to this anyway. Yeah, it, it's like. I occasionally, like, have these reminders where it's like, I really need to not answer work emails before the first cup of coffee. I really need to just not do that. (laughs) I've seen you without coffee. It's a serious problem. Anyways. Well, one of many, but they've all led me to be your friend. Aww. Aww. Hi, I'm Katie Gibbs, and this is Art, I Swear. And I'm Vanessa Van Alstein. And today on our range of topics, we're still going to be taking a step back from all the heavies. We did Lee Bowery, and we did Francis Bacon. Bacon, bacon. Bacon, 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 bacon. And that was pretty heavy and hard. And, and it was hard on us. On our souls. Plus, there's some podcasts I can just kind of, like, whip out of my bohiney, and then there's some I actually have to research. And today's topic, I could just kind of whip out of my bohiney. Partially, shout out to Greg Metz of UTD uh, for his gallery management class. And if you're wondering exactly where in the human anatomy a bohiney is, and it's located somewhere between the the thyle area and the chestal area somewhere in there is a bohiney okay this is where you can tell that i am a west texan and you are not because in west texas we have our bohiney butts yeah we have don't go slap you girl in the bohiney butt we have a behind and a butt it's a bohiney butt out there i've even heard hiney but never a bohiney butt no i'm telling you i come from a superior level of hick yeah, no, I've got uh, relatives in Alabama who take a very easy one-syllable word, like my daughter's name, and stretch it out into five to six syllables. Uh, you know, I actually, like, I pulled this fan group for another podcast I was on for Where in the Country Would You Live Within Certain Parameters, and people were like, what's wrong with Texas? I don't think you've really given it a chance. And I'm like, I don't think you realize I'm related to a good bit of Travis County and Ellis County and Nolan County. I know what Texas has to offer. We've been here. Yeah, I, I'm aware. I'm aware. We've seen it. And it's like, like anywhere else inside the city limits, pretty liberal. Houston had the First openly gay mayor elected to a major U.S. city. Thank you, Houston. The country, well, that's where all your stereotypes live. And there is a lot of country in Texas. It's a big state. So today we're covering how galleries work. It's exciting. And it's, you know, this is a question like, 
you might be like, well, how do artists make money? How do you get into a gallery? How does a gallery make money? What's the difference between like a good gallery and a crappy gallery? And where do you want to be if you're an artist? We're going to answer all those and more. It's what we're here for. Um, now, I'm going to go ahead and say this might be a little tedious for some of the actual artists who listen to our podcast. Sorry, guys. You're not our target audience. <laughs> but we love you anyway. Yes, please keep listening and please like and share. Um, and I do want to say we've actually been getting some pretty good feedback. So if you like our podcast, if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions for future podcasts, please do continue to let us know. Email us. If you have a problem with something we said, also email us politely. Um, we are always open for discussion. Um, we can take constructive criticism. Don't yeah. email me and tell me that my bohiney butt stinks. I don't want to know. It does, just so you know. I hate you. I haven't emailed you that, though, so you can't hate me all the time. It's not in writing. No, I just already hate you 24-7, 365. Mm, for how many years now? A long time. Mm-hmm. So, I wanted to give an update on Doig, mostly because I like saying Doig. <laughs> um, so, apparently the Doig ruling came down, if you don't didn't listen to our last episode on Bob Ross... Doig is being sued because a prison correctional officer claims that he was in jail for drugs in one city in the 70s and gave him a painting when Doig has never been arrested for drugs. And was nowhere near that city. Yeah, so it's... so he had, Doig had to prove that the painting wasn't his. Like, the court actually allowed the case to proceed so that Doig could prove the painting. It was, The onus was upon Doig to prove the painting wasn't his, which is insane. Yeah, it, and I, once again, I think that the judge just took this case so that he could, like, sit back and laugh at the loonies. But it, they ruled in Doig's favor. He wasn't in jail for drugs in the 70s. There apparently was a man that was... I'm going to say Doig with an E. I don't know how you pronounce it if there's an E at the end, but it was Doig with an E that was in jail. That's Doji. not the same guy. Doji. I don't know. I don't no, know. I'm going to just say Doig with an E. Like, if I met him, I'd be like, hello, Mr. Doig with an E. Doigy. Doig, Doig, Doig. Doigy okay. and Doig. Yes. So there's there's the update. Street doig. So if you have to prove that something's not yours, it turns out that you could do that. And he was, and, and, and doig, original doig, was 16, I believe, at the time. Yeah. So, so the, it was the, You can ridiculous. listen to last week's podcast and hear us rant about it for an insane amount of time. So, cool Instagram updates. Um, I have a friend named Dr. Carissa Terranova. She lives here in Dallas, but uh, she was at the Guggenheim this weekend with her spouse, and they've been posting photos of the Maholi Nagy exhibition. And he was a teacher in the Bauhaus, a prominent like mid-century uh, modernist. And she recently wrote a book about him called "Art as Organism: Biology and the Evolution of the Digital Image," which uh, I'll have the Amazon link and the footnotes if you want to pay. It's like a hundred dollar book because it was limited edition academic publication with a crap ton of expensive images. But, you know, that's how it rolls. 
Um, if you're in New York City, you should check that show out. Uh, Nagi did a lot of really neat stuff with Shadow um, and how light plays across things. And he really is one of the like innovative people in the last hundred years and isn't always as well known as he probably should be. But this made me think of what is an art gallery and how does it affect how we view art and the career of artists and, you know, just how people make money. Did you know money's the root of all evil? I've seen a whole uh, mathematical equation on it. It's a meme. Yeah. You know, and, you know, like, I think if Vincent Van Gogh taught us one thing is that you can't survive eating paint. <laughs> aww. Yeah, aww. Poor Vincent. Don't eat your paint. Don't drink your turpentine. Just don't do it. You'll end up cutting off part of your ear and sending it to a prostitute. Possibly. But if I have to be truthful about the whole thing, a lot of time art galleries are as important or more so than the artist when it comes to making a career. The right gallery can make or break you. And what we're not going to include in this is museums like the Guggenheim we mentioned earlier. What you should know is that a museum is a stable collection of art and they often work off of some kind of paid trust. Uh, usually that'll be the name that's on the museum, like it's the Solomon Guggenheim Museum because that's who set up the trust and who owned the original collection. In the DMA, there's that wing of the DMA that was set up by a trust that's all, like, uh, Degas and... I know the de Goyer family has been really a big part of the DMA, and so has the, um... It starts with a K, and it's not the Kimballs, but it's... It's another big Dallas family. The Kimballs are who set up the Kimball Museum in Fort Worth. Which is beautiful, and trumps the DMA hands down. Sorry, DMA. Um, Not sorry. Another part of how museums pay for what's inside of them is charging fees for traveling exhibits, especially because they usually pay for the privilege of having the exhibit there. Membership fees, uh, donated works. Even if they just have to go off and sell it to charity, that's going back in to run the museum. They are a nonprofit institute. And it, the artwork that's in there is usually not new. It's established as having some kind of like value or interest or prestige to either a period or more contemporary art. It's going to have dedicated provenance. They're going to authenticate it. They're going to go through the rigorous amounts of authentication before they put anything out. But did you know that museums do still have an effect on the value of art? Is that confusing? Well, we'll cover that. Yay! Oh boy! <laughs> We're not really going to cover the history of art galleries, though. It would make the podcast, like, crazy long. And, and you know, when you were going through this, I'm going to kind of address you as if you are an artist. So just put on your beret and your stripy shirt. And start hating modern society and thinking that you're an out and start thinking you're an outcast. Nobody understands you and you need to communicate this somehow. And remember, it's Nietzsche, not Nietzsche. You've just rocked my world. I man. know. Ugh. I need Anyways. some hand rolled cigarettes for this. <laughs> so let's get into the money and mayhem of the big art business. I also got to give a disclaimer. I'm kind of a biz uh, or a burnt out MFA. Like I'm just, you know, I'm a little bitter. 
So, you know, if I sound bitter, I am. I know. I, <laughs> I don't care. You know, tell me. And I'm going to go ahead and give a disclaimer that I am not an artist. I'm an art history major. And the difference therein is Vanessa has done the research for all this. And I'm just going to interject every once in a while with witty repartee. The other thing we're not really going to cover is the secondhand market. And this is where art comes back to either the dealer of the, or the gallery and goes up for auction or is sold to whatever the market will pay for it through the collector market that exists with the gallery. It, this sounds really convoluted because it is. Um, and explaining it is just going to make me like completely irate. Just know after a piece of artwork is sold, the artist is never going to make money off of it again. They retain copyright for reproductive purposes. So if you buy a Pollock, you cannot legally reproduce the Pollock on like a t-shirt or a print or a picture. The Pollock estate still owns that and you still have to get permission for it that and sometimes you have to get permission just to show it but that is the only way the pollock estate would ever make money off of a pollock again so it's like the half price books for artistry yeah that's if you only buy your bestsellers at half price books you're not paying the author you're just giving them money and for those of you that don't have half price books i'm sorry it, it really is quite phenomenal so, first sale art here on out. It's the first time it sells. So, Katie, what is an out art gallery? I don't know. My father-in-law is trying to call me right now. <clears throat> so, traditionally, they're a for-profit company that cultivates and exhibits artworks that are for sale and that fit their cultivated client bases. <clears throat> it sounds very pretty when you write it that way. Thank you. And not all galleries are for profit. We'll cover that a little more later. But I'm, we said cultivated client base. You might be wondering what that is. What is that? Um, okay, let's say you're selling sculpture. And that's all you focus on for your market. You don't want people that only collect paintings coming in and drinking your beer and eating your food. Um, you also want to sell the highest for the highest amount that you can make for this sculpture. So you want the people that are wealthy or famous or add prestige to the art to come in and purchase the piece. Also, if they're the kind of people that are likely to donate the work and have it accepted to a prestigious museum, once again, like the Guggenheim, that's going to drive up the value of the artwork because more people are going to be aware of it. So, you know, it's it's of more value to sell it to somebody who's not going to give it to their kids. They're going to give it to the Dallas Museum of Art. Right. Um, if you remember the last podcast, we talked about who the F is Jackson Pollock, the film. This is why nobody wanted that poor trucker to own a Pollock. I, the theory that a woman just bought it out of goodwill and has an eighth grade education ruins the prestige of having a Pollock. We talked about the elite collector base that keeps that price up and wants to stay an elite collector base. Well, they don't want to have a, we own a Jackson Pollock party and have Mrs. Truck Driver show up. Tammy the Truck Driver. Tammy the Truck Driver. It, you know, <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. I mean, pretty much. Uh, it would, in theory, affect the value of your piece. 
Yeah. It, because value is ascertained by the provenance behind it and because it's the art world who owns them. It's like, think about it, okay, I always loved Malcolm in the Middle because they have that, like, super trashy yard and, you know, for a family like that, like, yeah, they would have a super trashy yard. And they cover how all of the neighbors hate them because the trashy yard devalues their homes. It's kind of the same thing. Is it really stuck up and ridiculous? Yeah, it is. I will never argue that point with you. Mm, elitism. It mm. tastes like bunk. Well, it's. I think I told you before, part of what kind of soured me for the art world was, you know, I finished grad school in 2010 when the market was still crashed and... I'm struggling and Architectural Digest started to tr send me copies of their magazine and I'm sitting there one day looking through it and I'm like, that's a Damien Hirst and that's a Jeff Koons and that's a, and these are like 10 and $20 million homes and that's who really buys artwork and I'm just going to go curl up in a depressed little ball in the corner because I don't really fit into that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's what medication is for. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Mommy loves her don't give a crap pills. <laughs> Xanax for the win. So what's it like going to an art gallery? What should I expect? Um, I'm going to say some beer, some wine, some whining, and maybe some hard liquor and maybe a cheese platter to soak up. Just a little bit of that alcohol. Yeah, so they're not legally liable. Yeah, that sounds like an opening. I think we kind of covered a lot of this in our Good Art Manners podcast. So if you want to go to a gallery opening or a museum and not look like a D-bag, that'll that got you. It's uh, also known as the podcast where Katie and Vanessa bitch without bitching. Yeah. Um, most gallery openings are publicly announced events. Uh, at the high-end ones, you can really kind of meet anybody from celebrities to local celebrities to artists to people who just kind of show up to score free beer. I met, uh, oh, he's one of the Ghostbusters, Dan, uh, Dan Aykroyd. I met him at a art opening. He was the ambassador for the Houston Art Car Parade, and he showed up to one of the really elite galleries in town that he collects out of, so... I heard he might be autistic. He was a little odd, but yeah, I, I'm sure he's nice. There or was also a ton something. of people. Crystal Skull Vodka, he's got, like, a whole, like, conspiracy thing I think he actually believes in. I'm, But we're not, we're not here to talk about Dan Aykroyd. <sighs> Back on topic... Um, and if you're like, I don't want to see a fruity performance art or something like that, that stuff's usually going to be on like the flyer or a web page. It'll tell you time, title, location. So, um, again, this is harkening back to our Good Manners podcast. But if you have questions about something, gallery openings, go ask somebody, anybody, somebody working for the gallery. They're there to inform you about the work for the hopes that you might buy it. They'll even set you up with payment plans if you just gots to have it and they'll sell it to you. So if you want to buy, ask. Yeah. If you have questions, ask. But what if they won't sell to me because I'm not a prestigious collector? It happens. Yeah, it really actually does. And this is where I'm going to sound like a bitter person because I am... The art world is convoluted and a dulled down version of the stock market. If you want to 
compete. Your money's good, but they want somebody that's going to bring added value to the artwork in the long term. If you're really wanting to purchase high-end artwork and you have the money to back it up, you can look into getting someone that represents you, which is usually called a buyer, an art buyer, like a stock broker. And they function the exact same way. They're going to be able to tell you who's hot right now, who is trending and making people a lot of money, who that flips artwork because there are artwork flippers. And if it's good to buy the artists that they're flipping right now, if that price is going to jump up, um, if you want a five-year investment versus a 50-year investment, and who on the second-hand market is worth buying. Uh, excuse me while I go s commit seppuku for all my hopes and dreams of the art world going against the idiocracy. They're dashed. Yeah. Dashed. The art you buy in a gallery just also might not hold up its value. That's one of the things that the fact that there are buyers and flippers should tell you. But, you know, if you just want to buy it because it's pretty or it appeals to you or it says something to you or you like that artist and you don't care that they're not going to double their value in five years, do it. There is not a right or wrong way to collect artwork as long as you're doing it within, like, ethical boundaries. I was at Cafe Brazil today, and I'm really thinking about going back there and buying something that was on the wall. Because it speaks to you, and that's really what the heart of art should be about. <laughs> well, to Katie, Shh. I'm not going to say somebody that has a buyer and flips is wrong, but they have messed up the market historically. Which... Flies in the face of that romantic idea that gallerists show up in basements where some poor schlub has been slaving away for years as his masterpiece. And then after the show, the artist is set for life. Hmm. Which I usually respond to that idea with, okay, off the top of your head, name five living artists. Ooh, 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 Shut ooh. up, art historian. Dang it. Also, masterpiece is an extremely archaic term. It originally meant the final product of an apprentice in a guild system. He would submit work that is his masterpiece that would be evaluated by a master tradesman. And after that, he would have the title of master. It comes from a 16th century Dutch word, which is a meesterstuk, basically. Sorry, Dutch. I, yeah, sorry, Dutch. We, we did our best. You may correct us later. It's okay. So a good way to get artsy people to get a stink eye is to use the word masterpiece. Just don't. <laughs> it's gauche. How do gallerists make their money, though? Well, they're going to take 40, 40 to 60% off the top of whatever you are paying for an existing piece of artwork. So if you pay $100 for a picture in a gallery... The artist will get 40 or 60 bucks. Damn, son. Yeah. They invented the game. Well, but this is the thing. A good gallery promotes your work. They will help you with bios. They will introduce you to collectors. They will submit you to art fairs. They will give you the heads up or submit you to shows that help with exposure. They will network you into a wealthy collector base, which may include dinners, lunches, and parties. And they are going to work to increase your prestige and price. Because your work is being shown in their gallery and they want people to come into their gallery. Yep. 
And plus, and then galleries have to cover all of this time, the help that they're paying to do it, the hooch for the opening, their power, their water, possibly rent, if not rent a mortgage, the paint to repaint the walls. And this just goes on and on and on. And opening a gallery, if you want to go broke, great way to do it. You said hooch. Hooch. It's because I'm a classy girl. I'm a classy girl. So. With a bohiney butt. This sounds like a pretty parasitic relationship. Both our relationship and the relationship of the artist in the gallery. Oh my god, I want to make out with you now. Hot. Ugh. No, actually, you're too much like a sister. That would just be really upsetting. (laughs) Yeah. So... You know, the first time I heard how much gallerists took off the top, though, I was like, I kind of want to give them a finger and go my own way. But you just listed off all these great reasons for you to be in the gallery. Yeah, it's just going to hurt your money-making potential. Hmm. Who needs money? Rent is so overrated. (laughs) Or overcharging, depending on who you are. Um, not me. I love you. And that's also why, though, the idea that artists suddenly just make it is mistaken you never have a show and are launched for stardom and don't have to really do anything else except for create there are a few obscenely wealthy artists like damian hurst and jeff coons again but this is a career where you will always be cultivating and working on art most artists never retire and there is a business side you have to market yourself you have to do the networking you have to go out there it's never just about the love of making art unless you're wealthy enough not to have to worry so did you know that most artists with mfas teach college to supplement their income yeah and those jobs are even getting really hard to get and you know how i know that because you did it for a time and i remember oh i hated teaching i'm not a teacher Also, did you know that most art historians who get their BA will be asked at least once a month, so are you going to teach with that? You get asked that if you're getting a BFA in studio art, too. What are you going to do, teach? And then people will later mock you because you have a master's degree and expect to be compensated as much as people with equal experience. But since yours is in, quote, underwater basket weaving, apparently you're asking too much. So you stab that person and go into freelancing. (laughs) Not that we're referencing any specific situation. Or a legal case that Vanessa can't talk about. Uh, Binding agreements. Now, if you're going, oh, man, but I'm an artist and I need to be getting me in one of these fancy galleries. Well, your work needs to be good, number one. Uh, You need to network. And by networking, I mean you need to show up to art openings at the place you want to show at and talk to other peoples and the artists and the the gallerists. And you need to have a well-written bio and an artistic statement that's on a web page along with your cv which is curriculum vitae it's an artist resume but you can't be pushy you can't be obnoxious you need to try to be cool so basically you need to push yourself but don't push yourself your work may get you pretty far but it is never gonna make up for a crappy personality So you need to brand yourself right away. If you want to get into a gallery, you need to 
market yourself. Yeah, I've had a lot of people that are like, you have a studio art degree and you went into marketing. And I'm like, if you knew anything about studio art, you'd know that half of it is learning how to write and learning how to market yourself. And if you want a hard product, sell yourself. Yeah, of course. I am awesome at belly button lint pickery. Well, and it's, you know, we're taught to be modest and not brag and not be pushy. Especially if you're female. So you have to overcome that and learn the, like, perfect balance. Mm-hmm. Which I've never been real great at for myself, but I got good at doing it for other people. See Vanessa's website, socially-stunning.com. Or beautiful blurbs if you need that artistic statement or bio. Um, so back to our topic at hand, can you tell me more about the hierarchy of galleries? Like, how does that work? Okay. What kind of gallery you want to be in depends on what kind of artist you are. If you're a Bob Ross certified painter, you need to be pitching to a different kind of gallery than if you're like Leah Lee Bowery. Um, or Francis Bacon. Oof. Oof. Or Agnes Martin. Agnes Martin would not show in the same gallery as... Lee Bowery. Or even, like, Mondrian, probably. I could see them together, actually. I could see Martin and Mondrian. I'm not gonna see... Martin's probably not gonna show as, like, a, you know, a real kitschy artist. You are never going to start out from zero and land in a really fancy gallery, or at least it very, very rarely happens. I imagine the odds are something like being struck by lightning and having a winning lottery ticket in your hand. And taking the, like, one or two examples of artists that did that, there's a reason they end up in, like, movies and TV. It's because it's weird and interesting. Nobody wants to hear about the guy that struggled for 30 years and then finally made it. I can't imagine it really serves them well in the end either because they don't learn how to have those same coping skills as the artist who's been plugging at it for 30 years. Well, this, yeah, I mean, there is something to be said about burning your candle from both ends. And this is the thing, if you're going to be part of the print market, you've basically made your work valueless. If there's like a 50,000 edition print of whatever you're making, a high-end gallery is never going to touch that because people can get so many reproductions of it. Um, and this can create a reputation that follows you if you're thinking, I'm just going to make a couple of like easy to flip things and make some prints and just make some extra Etsy money. That can haunt you later. And the lowest of the low, the ones you want to be really careful with, are like consignment galleries. A good one should provide you with a written agreement about what you sell and what you're going to be paid. And how things are returned if they don't sell after a certain period of time. A bad one is just going to take your work and never pay you. Uh, Most of the time there's some kind of word of mouth out there about if they rip people off or not. Especially in the digital age. Consignment galleries, you put your work there with no agreement for reimbursement unless somebody just buys it. Versus, like, if you make a whole bunch of jewelry and somebody pays you, like, 50 bucks to take it off your hands. Beware of any place that wants you to pay for your own show or pay to show with them. It's usually a scam, especially if you look at who they are showing and it doesn't make any sense, like, if it's... Somebody that paints landscapes and then 
somebody who's real hard abstract. And followed by some natural sculptures and followed by a tire iron carefully placed in the corner. Is it art? (laughs) Or did somebody need to change a tire? But here's an unhappy reality. No galleries cover the shipping of work to them. Um, Most will not cover framing. Very wealthy ones may cover delivery to a client, but the artist is probably still going to be out for that with most galleries. Um, So that's not a sign that you're getting ripped off. What is, is I'm going to pay $250 for a show in six months. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Money shouldn't come directly out of your pocket to show in a gallery like that. They'll take it off the back end once your piece sells. Exactly. Next on the rung are going to be your decorator galleries. These aren't a lot better than frame shops. Because they're still selling items more for decoration than value. Some people who cater to these are flexible with style and make a decent living here because they're going to do whatever a collector wants. But as an MFA jerk, I'm going to tell you, most artists who are in school, that is not their goal. It's a top-tier gallery. Um, And I mentioned frame shops. That's usually going to be on par with your consignment shop or, like... They sell artwork at one of the uh, vape shops my husband goes to that's poisoned to a good career. And by good career, I mean what my jerk MFA told me I wanted. If you're happy sh- selling at the vape shop, don't let me step on that. Hmm. It's kind of the same deal for art fairs. So how does it really hurt, hurt your reputation to sell there? Well, a, a designer gallery really doesn't care about cultivation of the artists or their collector base uh the works bought from one are not something that's understood to accrue in value so there will be no secondhand market to ever bolster your career um people are buying this stuff because it looks good over their sofa and they want it now and they're going to throw it away in five years when they re-update their house decoration the decor darling the decor Next on the tiers are going to be your low-end art galleries. Without naming names, there's some galleries here in Dallas that churn and burn young talent from DFW schools. These guys throw exhibitions, which are contests, artist center for a modest fee. This is not a rip-off. This is how it's done. After you submit your work with like the five to 20 bucks, uh, they select who they're going to show, and sometimes there's a prize at the end or a bigger show or something like that. Or a bunny! Uh, If they're giving you bunnies for showing there and it's not a, like, Jeff Koons sculpture, don't... I'm, like, rubbing my face. Look sad it does. (laughs) I have officially thrown Vanessa so off course that she's trying to rip the skin from her face. It's not the first time. It won't be the last. I'm sorry, listeners. We're a little out of sorts today. So if you're like a BFA level artist or still in grad school, this is about where you want to be showing in a gallery. They're going to help you with low level networking. They probably know somebody in a better gallery. And honestly, this is where a lot of careers hit the ceiling. Like the bulk of people who keep up an art career after they get their degrees it's these like low to mid-level galleries that are you know gonna 
That's gonna be it. So what's a so if we just did low end galleries, what's a medium level? They're mostly going to be outside of New York and LA. Um, there's some big name influencers in every region. Sometimes they're basically high tier. They'll want representation contracts for a region. I mean, have a lawyer read anything you're going to sign. Um, but this is they're still going to be kind of like at the penny stage of the stock value of artwork. Um, you know, there's a gallery I can think of here that has connections to like the Macy's collection and the Bank of America collection. They're not showing people they're going to show up in textbooks or be real famous. Um, they can get you into some decent art shows. Your work's probably selling in the $10,000 to $200,000 a piece range, but that's, that's the ceiling. Um, I'm okay with that ceiling. Can I live in that ceiling? Well, I'm going to say really much over a hundred thousand. You're probably going to get into the higher tiers, but not always. Be, it it just depends. And the higher tier ones, they're in New York or L.A. Um, they're prestigious. They're going to get you into international shows for sure. You're for sure going to get into the big art fairs. Um, they're sometimes owned by the wealthy elite of like New York or whatever, like the Guggenheims. That's how they started their collection. Your name will just drip off their lips. And some, I, and I'm going to give you like a quick, um, summary of some kind of a chronological summary of some famous people that worked in these high tier galleries and like what they contributed and how they kind of hurt. First off, starting with Peggy Guggenheim. She was the heiress to a wealthy mining family who was well known for their cultivation of art. Her existence as an expat in Paris between World War I and World War II put her in the unique position to share her works with America once she returned overseas. Being in one of her shows made a lot of careers, and she was famous for her patronage and affair with Jackson Pollock. Peggy Guggenheim has a huge influence on New York becoming the art capital after World War II. Another one worth mentioning is Bruno Bischofberger. Bischofberger! He goes by Bruno. Very smart man. If you ever see Julian Schnabel's film Basquiat about the neo-expressionist who died in his late 20s of a heroin overdose, he was kind of a graffiti artist. I remember that. Bischofberger is the guy who was sitting with Warhol at the table when Basquiat comes in to sell him, quote, ignorant art. And Andy Warhol, who's played by David Bowie, mm. it's like, oh, Bruno, do we want some ignorant art? It's like the worst. Oh Andy my God. Warhol. No, that's terrible. I didn't even realize that was David Bowie. Did you? I did not know. Yeah. How did I not know? I didn't. I, I watched the credits. I'm like, who is David Bowie play? I looked it up on my phone. <laughs> oh, smartphones. But Bruno, he's... This is the guy that brings you pop art and kind of starts redefining the gallery as more of a space for thought and ideas. Um, the next one on the list is Mary Boone Gallery, who's owned by Mary Boone. She opened a gallery in Soho in the 70s when you could still afford rent in New York City. Oh, that's accurate. Uh, she took a gamble on two rising neo-expressionists named um, Julian Schnabel. Julian Schnabel and David Solly. And it paid off. Yep. 
It paid off well. She had a really smart eye for curation, and having a show in her gallery means you've made it, or you're about to make it big. And she's a part of the culture that created things like art dealers and art brokers, which is the side of art that the world doesn't really think is very romantic, and that's pretty accurate. Yeah, it's the uh, Huzzah big business. I mean, she's a smart woman. She's a really smart businesswoman, but... The 80s in New York, that's what made this into the stock-broking POS it is. I, I thought the 80s in New York was all about cocaine. And... Well, that would be part of this. Okay. Um, the next guy I'm going to mention is Henry Deitch, and I'm just going to spearhead that because I bet you were looking at that and going, what the, what the heck? Well, also it says Jeffrey Deitch. Oh, it's Jeffrey Deitch. It is Jeffrey Deitch. I'm a moron. Hi. This is what happens when you're dyslexic and so many names are similar and uh-huh i love you i love you because you're pretty i'm having a stressful week and we all are so his deitch projects it's a really big deal in new york um he closed it down for a while so that he could be the curator of the moma museum of modern art in la but he's returned to showing art though he's known for promoting really edgy young artists being in his one of his art shows will greatly increase the price of your work. And Deitch kind of reflects the contemporary trend in the gallery word, world to inflate the prices of younger, less established artists and sell them to collectors who are less invested in the long-term value and more the churn and burn stockbroker valuing that's kind of popular in New York City right now. And it's honestly, that's... The art world crashed in 2008 alongside the housing market because of this. I And I think they're doing it again. So aren't we supposed to be talking about like art and art and love and potatoes and art? Why, why did we lose focus? Why can't it just be about the art and love? And more potatoes. I have some sincere Irish roots. I would like my potatoes. Well, you know, a lot of artists would agree with you. Uh, Since the 60s, there's always been a very big anti-establishment feeling that's in vogue among people who don't fit in society's mainstream idea of success, which is your creatives, typically. The people who make the art. (laughs) Yeah. Are not making the money off the art. Yeah, the art world... The artists love to give the finger to the man, but at the end of the day, the man is who's buying their work. It's it's a dirty, weird relationship. And at the end of the day, though, art is only worth what somebody will pay for it. Which basically is the definition of value intrinsically. Art, and artists have done things to rebel against the gallery system. Um, things like flash mobs and pop-up shows which use unconventional spaces that make it to where work is sold directly to the artist or it isn't so much about selling the artwork as exposure. Um, What's the difference between like a pop-up show and selling your stuff on Etsy though? Because you're going directly to your client either way. That's a good question. Uh, I think that some of it's going to have to do with the fact that you're still in, you're usually in a curated space. You invite your other artist friends that are kind of on equal footing. Um, and then this usually does end up 
blowing up back on the artist's face and making them part of that secondhand market that's its own little vampire monster thing that you can't control. Remind me to never make a podcast about the secondhand market. And when you suggest it, like a year down the road, I'm going to hit you with a stick. Just stab me with an ice pick and make it all over. <laughs> Deal. And that's how the murder-suicide pact started, folks. Well, and I, I have a whole thing here, but basically the summary is like, don't feel bad about going to arch fairs or whatever and buying something for 20 bucks. It's as long as the artist is making money. As and as long as the art speaks to you in whatever way you want art to speak to you. Then... And there's no right answer for an art career. If you want to go to university and then sell stuff on Etsy and go to art fairs where grandma painters hang out, good, be happy. <laughs> I've known some really good grandma painters. And there's, you know... This anti-establishment stuff blows up in people's face. I have a couple of examples here, but I'm going to use the big one because we're going kind of long now, who is Ray Johnson. He's the guy that's responsible for mail art, which is artists mailing pieces back and forth between each other. Um, he would walk into galleries and hang his artwork on walls without permission and just leave it there. And sometimes it would take the, the museum or gallery up to a week to notice. <laughs> that's epic and bad don't do that <laughs> yeah you, people know about this now he's really well known um he would also boast himself as being part of that collection then on his cv and resume he also discovered that a lot of museums at the time at the time had a policy that if you mailed them artwork they'd keep it so he would mail the biggest museums in the country a drawing and then boast it. Oh, I'm in their collection because he is. A lot of them have changed this policy now. <laughs> yeah. There is a documentary about him, which is called How to Draw a Bunny. But I'm going to warn you, kind of a trigger warning here. It's mostly about his suicide. He was never successful, and a lot of people think that how he killed himself was actually his final art piece. He left a lot of clues. There was a bunch of numbers that like lined up with other works he did. It's a fascinating documentary to watch, and it covers pretty much all of his like big highlights shenanigans, but it is ultimately about a suicide. Um, if you need me, I'll be crying in a corner because you just ruined drawing bunnies for me. Well, you know, let's talk about Banksy then, which is like urban art, street art, graffiti, murals, public art, blah, 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 whatever you want to call it. Banksy spray paints artwork on walls regardless of whether or not it's legal and this is considered high art. Why is that high art and then most people's graffiti considered criminal well and this is there's a whole controversy we could get into here which is about urban art being devalued because it's mostly seen as something that belongs to people of color versus banksy who for all intents and purposes we found out is a upper middle class white male from great britain 
this also happened with Keith Haring and you may recall Shepard Ferry who did Obama's presidential portrait. Mm-hmm. Same deal there. Shepard Ferry, it, it's really hilarious. His webpage reads manufacturing quality descent since 1989 but then it has his cv and links to where you can buy prints and original art pieces online you know and he went to the rhode island school of design which is one of the best art schools in the country and like uber expensive it still sounds very fake and shysty but it really is very good what these Banksy and Shepherd Fairy have done is taken a poor art form because graffiti art with spray paint cans doesn't really start happening until the 60s and 70s. It's in urban areas, it's in poor urban areas, and it's in people, once again, people of color. So it's not valued by the extremely male, extremely white gallery world at the time. It also doesn't fit into their easy history of what is art. So these upper middle class white males getting fame for it is opening the door to now look back and say, okay, well, this is the origin of graffiti. This is how it plays into artwork. And there were some guys in the 80s who were famous, once again, Keith Haring and Basquiat. And Basquiat was a person of color. However, he was really kind of taken advantage of and exploited by the art world died too young yeah i think he was 27 or mm-hmm. he was 27 or 29 but yeah if you want to watch a really good documentary on who banksy is and the documentary itself is kind of one of his uh, attention getting pranks check out exit through the gift shop <laughs> and there's another really good one called the subconscious art of graffiti removal which is just fun to watch All right, I give up. Can I just sell my art online, please? Can I just do that? A lot of galleries do do that. Damn it. I I, I know a crazy artist named George Zup or or Chicken George. (laughs) He only sells his stuff on eBay in the odd show. He's hurt his reputation selling it on eBay, but he still makes a living. You can make a living on Etsy. You can make a living selling to decorators online. Once again, it really only matters... If you, the artist, are happy, you and you, the collector, are happy at the end of the day. And you, the artist, still have a home that you can live in. And you, the collector, can still have a home to live in and yet pay the artist for their work. Because the artist's time is valuable. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, art is a product. It's an item that has economic ramifications to its creation and sales and good or bad that's how the gallery world works we want to sell you the thing i want to buy the thing here let the money grease the palms yeah it's and if you're wondering like does the art world ever take advantage of artists oh yeah oh yeah 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 yeah. once again if you're an artist and you've got a contract in front of you have a lawyer look at it to find some way to pay them. But, <laughs> you know, that's it. So, <laughs> this has been our disjointed and greatly summed up. Uh, how do galleries run? Do you have more questions? Do you have less questions? Do you have an artist who you want us to cover? Do you want us to shut up and explode? Please comment on our Facebook, con- comment on iTunes, comment on SoundCloud, comment on artiswear.com, or send us an email at artiswear at gmail.com. 
uh, maybe don't want us to blow up. But all the other stuff sounds good. Um, we know how we suck. You don't have to spell it out. It, 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 seriously, we can take some constructive criticism, but when you start saying things like Vanessa needs to blow up, that's when Katie gets out her ninja hands and then starts getting ninja handy. And, you know, just just don't. Um, I do. Do you have any artists you want to feature at the end of the show today? I already gave Carissa a shout out. She, like, now owes me a sandwich, so whatever. Especially if somebody buys her $100 book. It's not her fault it's $100. It but is yeah. not. It sounds like a beautiful book. It's, I've read it. It's really well done. Yay! But you have to get through the fact that she's a Harvard Harvard PhD and knows words that you may have to look up in the dictionary. Aw, art historians make up words. This is true. (laughs) This is how I got my final paper done for (laughs) my art history degree. Sorry, Dr. Baxter. I made up some words on there. Well, what is that old saying? If if you can't amaze them with your brilliance, baffle them with BS. <laughs> Accurate. All right. So I'd like to give a thank to, thanks to our producer, Jillian Gomez. Check out her band, theflyingbuttresses.com. And if you're in the San Antonio or Austin area, she often performs and it's some good tunes. Hey, Jillian, you should perform sometime in Austin when I'm down there for Austin Con. I'm just saying I would totally come see your work. And you'll have then actually met her, whereas I never have. I just went to school with her brother. I really will be in Austin in September, Jillian, look me up. Our intro and outro is provided by Joe Giggs. If you're looking for an artist who's way more fun than an art gallery, check out Joe Giggs, the New York City area. And I said artist, I mean DJ. All samples (laughs) provided by the Conant Project by Iridial. This has been Vanessa Van Alstein. And Katie Gibbs. Have a creative day. Bye.